0: Hi there, welcome to Mosaic Intercultural Church, coming to you from London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I'm the Executive Director and Pastor of Mosaic, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. If you want to learn more about Mosaic, you can find us online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com. see you, get to worship with you. It's always one of my great, like, favorite things in the world that I get to accompany God's people while we praise God together. It gives me so much joy to do that. And to to know that Jesus hears our prayer and that he is our good high priest who knows our weakness and he loves us and he offers us this eternal salvation, it's amazing. He is amazing. And uh, this is clearly the beginning of something. Uh, last night, I mean, okay, number one, who goes to orientation and training and learn, well, we learned about our compass points, and then we learned about risk management, and we learned about abuse prevention, and then our kids got up and said, praise God, we had such a great time at training last night. <laughs> and Steve, like, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad. I'm really glad. Uh, clearly, the Lord... Um, the prayer that I have been praying repeatedly for probably a couple of years now at Mosaic is that God would birth in Mosaic the kind of church that delights Him. And um, we were begun... Oh, we're coming up on our 11th anniversary, right, of our beginning in November. It'll be 11 years. Uh, we, were be- we, we first met in 2010, and uh, we grew out of uh, North Park's ministry here in Northeast London, but we were a couple kilometers that way, right? And this building that we're in now, um, actually was a. there's a longer story to it, but North Park owns this building, North Park Community Church owns this building. They want to see a church here that will serve this community. Uh, The same heartbeat that led to Mosaic being birthed is the same heartbeat that led to this church being designed the way that it is. And so we need to pray, we need to pray and ask God to just bless the relationship with North Park, to give me and Mosaic's leaders and North Park's leaders a common heart and discernment about how we could work together, because um, that would, we would love to be able to serve this community with the love of Jesus for a really long time. That would be amazing. And as we were reading the Lord's Prayer today, that little phrase caught my mind. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. So I want to call us to just let Jesus give us what we need for today. And we're going to reflect on uh, Hebrews chapter 5 together. He's been meeting us in, in the praises. You know, there's that awesome translation of the Bible that says that the Lord dwells in the praises of his people. We've been experiencing something of that this morning. Uh, and the Lord proclaims the word to us. Jesus is here. He wants to show us our Heavenly Father through the scriptures and through the word that we're going to hear today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we come to the scriptures, we, we know that you are showing yourself to us through Jesus, your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you make yourself radiant, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are eager to obey. And uh, And show us who you are and how you're calling us to live. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter five, verses one through 10. And then we're going to marvel at the wonder that God has provided for us eternal salvation for all who obey Jesus Christ. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this passage opens with a summary of what the responsibilities are of a priest. And we have priests in our time. We have religious priests, people who who actually, you know, if you ask somebody at a church down the road who's the priest at your church, they'll give you a name of a person, right? Um, if you ask people in this neighborhood, who's the priest at the temple where you worship, they might be able to give you the names of, of priests in the Buddhist temple. Um, there are priests in our time. But uh, the priests in this particular passage are talking about the Old Testament priest or the priests of Israel, uh, who were set up in the Old Testament. And, uh, and there are two functions three three realities about the priest that the author calls our attention to. number one, the priest is selected from among the people, so the police sorry the police. the priest <laughs> belongs to the community, is from the community, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, and what does that mean? Well, they offer gifts and sacrifices for sins now. There, we live in a time where there are a lot of people who have no connection to a priest, and really, their understanding of a priest might be overwhelmingly negative, right? For, for many of us, we look at the, we look at the news, line, news headlines, and we see, okay, in France, thousands upon thousands of children were abused in the Catholic Church. That's just been made incredibly public. People think, well, all those priests are, and then they label the priests with all sorts of evil labels. And we look in Canada and we see the same thing. We, we see the children's remains being found outside residential schools, and we think about the abuse within the Catholic Church, and these, these things make us think, can we trust priests? Are or priests, or are they all just power-hungry, abusive people? And, and if you know priests from other communities, you know actually no, there's some very faithful, uh, patient, kind, and just people who are priests. But for folks outside of that sphere, the connotation of priest is quite negative. But I wanna, I wanna suggest to us today that, that these functions that the priests have would actually make sense to anybody from any background. Now, that's, it might sound like a bit of a stretch, but, but imagine if you're reading, uh, you're reading the newspaper and, um, and you see a headline that says, pastor buys multimillion dollar uh, private jet, right? Now, I just saw some people all of a sudden roll their eyes. I heard the chuckles, right? We have a response to that. And our response, I think, is, who do you think you are? Right? Like, do you think you're better than everybody else? Like, how is it that you can be using money that has been given to God to make yourself look great and to build your own empire? And if we see a, a person who claims to be religious or claims to be a priest or a religious leader and they... Uh, they clearly don't have time for us, and they walk with their nose up in the air. Again, we would say to them, who do you think you are? But when we see a religious leader who, who spends time with the poor, who listens deeply to people, who belongs to the people, who belongs to the community, I think all of us resonate and we say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like There's something about a person who has been set apart as holy, somebody whose life has been... Uh, given to knowing God and helping others know God, it makes sense that they would be from among the people and that they would belong to a community. I think that that makes sense to us. The second thing is that this that the priests not only are selected from among the people, but they also have been designated by God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, again, this is coming out of Israel's scriptures, but I think it's pretty clear to us why these things make sense. That these things that were given to Israel actually make sense to all the peoples of the world. Like, why would you need to set aside people to give gifts to God? Like, like what is it about giving gifts to God? Why does that make sense? Isn't it because the Creator has given all things to us? That all of life is this incredibly generous gift. And that we, as humanity... It's deeply human for us to, re, not, not Sorry, it's not just deeply human, it's deeply right that we would give gifts back to the creator. This is something that, um, even though I've been raised in the church, and my family, my last name means generous, Karam is, is Lebanese, it's, it's Arabic, and it means generous, and my family has a lot of generosity. But there's not a culture of gift-giving in my family, like people will give money to support you, to, to help you, to, like, my, my family is generous. But gift-giving is not my love language, right? Like, you guys know the love language kind of mystique thing, like some people, Kim's family, my wife's family, gift-givers. Oh, my goodness. I show up at Christmas, they're giving gifts. And it's amazing for me to learn from them the, the goodness of giving gifts. Kenny, uh, who was up here with, with uh, Aklai and, and Hattie helping lead Ilma Sauve, Kenny is a wonderful example of this. He came and stayed with us just for a few weeks back in May, and he just comes with gifts. Why? Because in his indigenous context, and out of his indigenous community, gift-giving is this sacred, profound reality. Peoples of the world understand that we live in, in the generosity of the creator, and that giving gifts is a sacred task. It's a sacred part of being human. And so priests do that. But priests also have to offer sacrifice for sins because we know that though the Creator has given us life and the Creator is so good and so generous, we have fallen short. We have been contaminated by sin. And so we offer back to the Creator sacrifices for sins, sacrifices by which we say, God, we we bring to you Animals, or we bring to you whatever we're able to bring, and for the, for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it was animals, to say, God, we are guilty of our sin, and we, we, we are offering you this animal, that the blood of this animal, the life of this animal, might purify the temple that we have contaminated with our sin. That the land that has been contaminated by our evil would be cleansed by the blood of these animals. And so blood had this purifying effect for the people of Israel. And the priests were the ones who were set, set apart to offer that sacrifice that cleanses the land, the temple, and the community so that God might dwell among us. Because God is holy and utterly pure. And for us to dwell with the Creator, we have to be made pure. You can't just come into the presence of the Almighty God On your own terms and say well take me as you find me this is the best you're gonna get that's not how you approach the creator of the galaxies the heavens and the earth and all that's in them and so there's this beautiful reality that the the the, the, the priests in the in the Israelite community chosen from among the people they offer the gifts and they offer the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people but also they themselves are just in the same mass as all of us. And that is beautiful and terrible at the same time, right? It says that the priests are able to be gentle with people because they're subject to the same weaknesses that everybody else is. So if somebody, somebody comes for the 500th time with a guilt offering because they kept on stealing and they just can't stop stealing and they, and they come and offer the sacrifice again, the priests the priests have the opportunity to say, okay, I understand the weakness of my brother and my sister because I too struggle with with sin. I too am tempted. And I can teach them, I can correct them, I can help them learn justice and and repentance so that they can bring a right sacrifice to God. But I can't set myself above them because I am also weak. And I just want to say that I think that in our time, that word weakness is a a word of incredible grace because in our time we see the evil in our world and what we tend to do is we condemn the people who have done that evil and we say that is evil you are evil you need to be cut off and silenced and put to the side and we need to, to cut you off from our community so that you don't spread your evil anymore and I mean, it's one of the main reasons why I cannot actually live on social media, right? Like the amount of condemnation of people, where they, they, whenever we condemn people in that way, we, what we're saying is we expect other people to achieve a moral standard. And if they don't achieve that moral standard, we will just shame them and wipe them out and feel righteous as we do it. But this doesn't say that that's how our creator is. And and this actually, like this word weakness offers us a more redemptive way to relate to each other. When I can look at my brothers and sisters and see their failures and say, okay, well, I have the same weakness. I'm still guilty of my sin, sure, but, but the Bible says that actually I'm subject to weakness, just like you are subject to weakness. And so is there evil at work in our hearts? Yes. But the scriptures doesn't say that the that the priests are subject to evil, or that the, the people are subject to evil. The scriptures say that the that the priests are subject to weakness. And that the people can be can receive help from the priests because they share in their weakness. And so when you think about that, okay, you think about what, what's in the scriptures in verse. Uh, 3, nope, not 3, verse 3, verse 2, that the priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Ignorance and going astray are very big words. They're words that we love to use to condemn other people with, right? Like, you are so ignorant is basically like, that's that's like you're one step away from being racist, from being You know, all sorts of proud and arrogant. To be ignorant in our time is evil. And to go astray means you're acting on your ignorance, right? But the priests are able to be gentle with people who are ignorant and going astray because we're all subject to weakness. How powerful is it when in a world filled with hatred and self-righteousness, there's power for us to look at each other and say, I can see that even in the midst of the evil you're doing, we share weakness. And weakness becomes, for us, it becomes a point of connection, a point of relationship, a point of redemption. But that also means that because the priest is subject to weakness, that the priest needs to be cleansed as well. He doesn't just offer the sacrifice on behalf of other people who are, who are evil, or sorry, who have sinned and who are weak, but he also offers the sacrifice on behalf of himself. And then the writer emphasizes, nobody takes the honor of being a priest on themselves, but only when they're called by God, just as Aaron was. And this is an important detail in this passage. Aaron is the first of the priests of Israel. He was Moses' brother, and God said that Aaron would function as the high priest, and Aaron's descendants from the tribe of Levi uh, would, be, would function as high priests. And so uh, the custom was that the priesthood in Israel went, from, went down the family line. So if your father was a high priest, you're the oldest son, you're next in line to be the high priest. It's a a biological, genealogical, family tree, family business, so to speak, right? To be the high priest. And God chose Aaron for that. Again, we don't just show up before the living God and say, hey, I'll be your priest, thank you. God doesn't need us. He chooses. And, And so there's something strange with Christ, okay? And this is something that you gotta understand in order to catch this passage. The thing about Jesus is, He's not descended from Aaron. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a priest according to the Israelite Jewish custom. He's not. So how can he be our great high priest if he's not from that lineage? We say that he's the son of David. He came from the lineage of David the king, and he is the one to whom... God fulfills the promise God made to David that one of David's descendants would always stay on the throne. Jesus is enthroned forever. He's the son of David. So how can he be high priest? Well, it says in verse six that that the that the Father has said to Jesus, "You are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek." Melchizedek. All right, you ready? Look at your neighbor and say, "Bible trivia matters." Melchizedek, the name means Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. King of righteousness. Melchizedek shows up only once, apart from Hebrews and that psalm. He shows up as a character in the narrative of the Bible after Abraham has accomplished a great victory. So this is Abraham the patriarch like he's gone and i think it's the one where he delivers lot like he goes and rescues his son lot which okay just as a fun thing like how cool is it that like tribal leaders who go and wage war to like save their their um to save their 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 relatives are like part of god's redemption in in this world right like abraham's so far removed from us right there are people who live that way who are who have to like wage war to protect their families today in afghanistan right God is so present and at work with them. They're, like, they're the people he made covenant with in the first place. Anyway, random aside. So after that battle and after Abraham sets Lot free from people that had um, oppressed him, he goes and, and he takes from the plunder, he gives 10% of what he has just won in battle. He gives 10% of that to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, this priest. So Abraham treats this priest, Melchizedek, as though he is the priest of God. And he is. He's the priest of God. The scriptures are clear about that. He is not from Abraham's lineage. This is before Moses and Aaron. This guy just shows up as a priest that Abraham the patriarch gives 10% of his victory to. And the writer to the Hebrews looks at that and says, God had a priest before Aaron, before Moses, before... The, the priesthood that exists in our temple today. And his name is Melchizedek. And, the, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He's the priest from before the priesthood. He's the king of righteousness who is also the high priest. Because this one, the king of righteousness, the true king of righteousness, is Jesus Christ, who though he was subject to temptation, never Gave in to that weakness, never sinned, but was declared by God to be a king for or to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God by his own word set apart Jesus Christ to be our high priest. And it also says that God says, You are my son, today I have become your father. So this is um, This is a very interesting phrase, okay? God said to Jesus, okay, so, so you're clear about Melchizedek, right? Jesus is our great high priest from priesthood before the priesthood. But that where, where it says that God says to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Do you know why that's a very strange thing for God to say? I mean, maybe, I don't, like, okay, do you know why I think it's, (laughs) that's clearly what I'm asking you. Do you know what I think? Which is not a good thing to ask. Um, So one of the things about that, so this is a quotation from the Psalms, and God says, you are my son today, I have begotten you today, I have become your father. One of the things that's very crazy about that is that the person who becomes, who's the person who becomes something in that passage, in that sentence? I have become your father. Who is it that becomes Somebody shut it up. God. God the Father, right? The eternal God. So, if you read it like we normally would, we would say, okay, so there was a time, so, so basically there was a time when God was not the Father, and then God became the Father, because it says, I became your Father. That's the normal grammar, right? But God is eternal. There's no change in God. So how does that make sense? Is it true that at one point God was not father and then God became father? No. Today, in the book of Hebrews, is the eternal now. Always. God is always begetting his son. The father is always, always the father to God the son. And it's active. It's not that God is subject to time, because that would make time greater than God, right? God transcends time itself. So when it says that today I have become your father, and you are my son, today I have become your father, it means that in God's eternal now, with no beginning and no end, no future, no past, God's eternal present, the Father begets the Son. The, God, the Father actively generates the life of the Son in eternal bliss and love, which means that, and this. This is why we can talk about God as being love, right? Is that God always, the Father is always generating the Son, which means the Father is always loving the Son. And the Son is always returning back to the Father that love in the glory and joy of the Holy Spirit. So God is, in his eternal reality, is this beauty and justice and joy and love that is beyond our comprehension. But that's the source of our existence. That is the eternal reality that gives us the gift of being. That is the one to whom we return our gifts because he has given us all things. Out of God's eternal, when we say eternal, we're not just talking about it lasts forever. We're saying God's eternal, full, right now, without limit, infinite, right now, unchanging goodness. God's eternal goodness is the reality on which we depend for everything. But there's this strange reality at the same time. So it says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death that is, his Father, God and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's focus really closely on verse eight. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. This is so important for us to understand. The Son of God is eternally generated by the Father. Jesus Christ is a human being as we are, fully God and fully human, which means that two things are true about him. He, number one, learned. He learned even obedience. And he learned obedience from what he suffered. And so we can say, this is, this is a line that comes from uh, Father John Baer, who's a, a wonderful theologian, who might be quoting somebody else. He says, Jesus Christ becomes as a man, what he, as the Son of God, He always is. Jesus Christ becomes as a man in time through development, what as the Son of God, he always is. And so in Jesus Christ, this paradox combines God's eternal, unchanging glory and goodness and our struggle and weakness and development and and wrestling and pain and sorrow and our learning. And so when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the combination, the integration of the eternal and the temporal, the the struggle in time and the unending bliss and glory of the infinite God. They combine without contradiction in Jesus Christ. What does that mean for you and me? Why Why does that matter? Well, it matters for a number of reasons. Number one, like I said last week, we tend to think Jesus didn't have to learn anything. We tend to think that Jesus wasn't really weak. And maybe Jesus, we think, well, Jesus didn't have to learn calculus or he didn't have to learn trigonometry. He didn't have to learn his times tables. Maybe he did and maybe he wasn't good at it, right? There's nothing, there's no moral failure in not being able to memorize two times two, right? He needed to learn. There were times where I'm sure growing up, his brothers might've ticked him off, and he had to learn how to wrestle with his temper. He needed to learn how to listen to his parents. When his parents were telling him things, that might not have been reasonable, and he didn't necessarily want to in the moment, right? But he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is, again, for when, we, when we go through suffering, we think something is the matter with us, right? We think that God has abandoned us, or we think that, that, that somehow it's, it's, it's working against the good future that we long for. But the scriptures say that through what Jesus suffered, he learned obedience and was made perfect. In other words, his perfection, his, the, now, now perfection does not mean the negative, like his, his sinlessness. Perfection means his, like the full maturity of his being, right? The, the perfection, the fullness of, of who he is, and all that he is intended to be by the Father, that perfection comes about because of what he learned through his suffering. Now that means, if that's true about God who reveals himself in his Son, Jesus Christ, if that's true for him, it's doubly and triply true for us. That what we suffer as we follow Jesus is teaching us obedience and that obedience is leading to our perfection our fulfillment our flourishing as human beings and Jesus knows our weakness and he look at it and you wonder about the intensity to which he knew it during the days of Jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears he himself wept before his father begging god begging god for things that broke his heart And God heard him. But look at what he says. He asked God for deliverance from death. Don't we all long to see death overthrown? Don't we long to escape death? And we pray for that. We pray for healing. And we celebrate when God miraculously heals or when he heals through science. I mean, all of the healing comes from God. We celebrate that. But how did the Father answer Jesus' prayer, which he heard because Jesus was reverently submissive? How did the Father answer Jesus' prayer? when Jesus cried out to be delivered from death. He delivered him by taking him through death. And because he went through death, because he suffered, he was made perfect. That was the fulfillment, to lay down his life. That's where he became fully human. That's where he became as a man what he always was and is as son of God, when he gave his life and died. And because of that, he's able to offer eternal salvation to those who obey him. Friends, all humanity and creation itself lives under the reality of death. We live in this reality where our creator has given life, and in the creator himself is life. But we in our sin, are bound to death. For people in this neighborhood, people all around the world, every person in this room, we are bound under death. But Jesus Christ has gone through death and death now has been turned inside out. It's now the gateway into life because Jesus went through and the Father heard his prayer and he brought him into, it, into uh, the life of the resurrection where Jesus is utterly transformed. And that is the eternal salvation that we get to taste now. And so when we, know, when we belong to Jesus Christ, when we obey him, when we are following him, the eternal reality of God's infinite life, his infinite love, his infinite goodness, his infinite justice, joy, peace, and, and uh, radiance and beauty, that's what we experience here in this timeline, day by day, when we walk and struggle and when we're in pain. And so this eternal salvation that God offers us is infinitely worthy. It's infinitely, like, what's the word? Infinitely valuable? You can't put a price on it. And it is worth sharing with others. But it's also something that we got to take in and drink deeply. We need to drink deeply of the eternal goodness of our Creator God. We need to, because the alternatives that are available to us are not better. (laughs) They are not better. Only God offers us the salvation that is actually real, that takes us through suffering into his eternal goodness and life. That is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the one in whom we place our hope. He's the one whose death has brought us life, and we worship Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You know what it's like to struggle and to bear weakness. We just thank You that You do not condemn us in our weakness and sin, but that You actually offer us salvation. Lord, I pray, oh, how I pray that you would uh, take us deeper into the reality of who you are, where the eternal God and our human existence completely cold, like align and overlap. Jesus, show us the eternal life of our Heavenly Father more and more each day. Fill us so that our lives would become uh, a gift back to you, a gift to other people, And so that we and and others might rejoice in being set free from sin. Lord, we thank you for all that you've accomplished for us. Thank you for being our high priest. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon podcast from Mosaic Intercultural Church in London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I want to thank you for joining us. If you want to find out more about Mosaic and about the work that we do, please check us out online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com.